We return now to Hebrews chapter 6, and we have certainly been here a while in these chapters, this digression in the text, but it's important, it'll conclude today, and this digression concludes, and the author gets back into the main body of his argument uh, at the end of this chapter, and so uh, we'll see even the transition uh, this morning as he works back toward the argument of who Melchizedek is and how Melchizedek is a important figure in the Old Testament, though barely there. A few verses in Genesis, a few verses in Psalm 110, and yet a bedrock of theology rests there. And so it's important to see that. We'll be coming back to that. But again, as we come to this important chapter, which is a digression, an important chapter in and of itself, um, we've noticed that there's a lot here to consider that holds this argument together. A stern warning at the beginning of the digression about those who are failing to grow, failing to listen, uh, lazy in their hearing, that sort of thing, and that it may represent more than disinterest. You know, that's, we've said all along, that's a bad thing if it just pictures disinterest, right? That would not speak well of your sanctification. But if what it pictures is something greater than that, it's a real reason for concern. It may represent that you're outside the family of faith. And so this is important to realize. The author is building this warning, this serious warning. And he continues to say the surest evidence for that is what? Apostasy. To basically walk away from the faith, yes, but it's even more than that. Apostasy means to deny the faith, to to recant the faith. And so he's saying here there's a problem here in which you're not simply walking away, but you're actually leaving and saying, I'm not a part of this any longer. And when you do that, this author says that is the surest evidence Uh, that we have, that you were never a part of the family of God. And so you've got to be careful with this, he's saying. got to be very careful. And uh, such behavior is warned against with the absolute sternest warnings of Scripture, which is why chapter 6 is noted and thought about and considered and read. And there are books hundreds of pages long just on this chapter in dealing with this warning and what it means and how to consider it. And so all this is important, but we need to recognize what this author is saying and is important to consider is this. I don't believe that speaks to you, he says. I don't believe you are those who are going to walk away and be shown to be outside the family of God. What I believe is that we have better thoughts concerning you. We have better things to say about you. We believe that you are in the family of God and you have things that are accompanying salvation. And so we've sought to establish that these are believers. And I think it's important to recognize that, but that there is a warning to them nonetheless. And this author doesn't recant that warning or or lighten that warning. He says, I'm giving that warning to you in full force, in full warning. Why? Because it may be God's way of bringing you back in, right? Of, Of saying, don't walk away, don't apostatize. This might be the very thing God is using to sanctify you. And so it's important to realize the author does not in any way lessen this. But he goes on to say something important as we begin to think about where he's going today. You've been diligent in your works. You've been diligent in your service, in your ministry. These are good things. But you need to be diligent in hopefulness. Because hopefulness is what helps us to stand in the day of trial. What is it that gets us to the end? It's a hope that there's something at the end, right? That there is something that goes beyond the here and the now. And so they have much diligence in service and ministry, but not much diligence in hopefulness as evidenced by the fact that this author is having to warn them, don't walk away, don't recant, don't turn away from Jesus. Jesus is our hope. He is our hope. He's going to use some different language today. And he says, 
There are many examples of faithful men and women that you can turn to to model after who stood in challenge. He gives Abraham. And he gives Abraham as an example that's important to us. And we're going to see how important today. Because Abraham was a man who received a promise. And he believed that promise even if it took a miracle for God to fulfill it. He said, I believe God will keep his word. Now that's going to be important to us. This author says the hope that Abraham saw in the promise of God is a hope that is extended to us. In fact, is strong consolation to us. The promise and the vow of God is strong consolation to us. Why? Because God's promises stand on His perfect faithfulness. They're not questionable. We don't have to worry if it's going to change. If God has promised it, we can trust it. We have the same basis for hopefulness that Abraham has because our God doesn't change. The same God who made a promise and a vow to Him has made the same vows and promises to us. Slightly different context. We recognize that seed to not be Isaac, but to be Christ. But it's through the same promise. And so we should not have our hope rocked by circumstances in this world. Now, what this author is going to say today is we have incredible security. If we just recognize it, we have incredible security in the hopes and promises of God. And so we want to look at what he said here and move into these two verses today. So I'm going to begin at this turn where he says, We are confident of better things concerning you. That's verse 9, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we think about this this morning, just have two points this morning. First of all, a sure and steady anchor. And second of all, a victorious and ministering forerunner. So beginning first with this sure and steady anchor, we want to see immediately there's a recollection of hope. It points right back to it. The author says at the beginning of this verse, this hope, not just hope, but a specific hope, this hope, which he's been referring to in verse 18. What is that hope? That is the hope we have fled for refuge to lay a hold of. We fled to Jesus to lay a hold of the hope that is found in Jesus. That is the hope of the gospel, the hope of salvation, the hope of eternal life, the hope of all these things that are given to us by God's grace in the gospel. And he says that is the hope that you have fled to, you have found refuge in, that you have laid hold of. Again, think of that language of laying a hold of seizing. You have seized this hope, or you should have seized this hope. 
And this hope, he says, there is something important to think about. That this hope is for us something that we must hold on to, must believe in, must, must live like. Again, notice before he said you're ministering, but you have not been diligent in this hope. You haven't laid hold of it. Now you need to lay hold of it. Well, what he's recognizing here is they've looked at these hopes, these eschatological hopes, the way we might look at a position paper. There's a list of things that we believe, but we're not necessarily living them out. And this author is saying, no, these hopes are more than just something you assent to. It's the way we would hold to a creed. We would say this creed is a representation of what I believe, what I live by, right? What is my hope? Well, it's not much of anything if it's just something you recant, right? I mean, excuse me, recite. If you just continue to go through it and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. You know, I believe that he rose from the dead. It doesn't have any power to it because it's just words that you're reciting. And I think this author is warning that this hope that you claim to have might just be that kind of hope, a recitation. It must be a living hope. It must be a living hope. Now, this is a warning this author sees in his day, but it's a warning to us today, right? When Peter wrote his epistles and he said that we must be prepared to give an answer or defense whenever we're asked about the hope within us, That's an expectation that the world will ask us. Why are you different? Why are you hopeful? If uh, we are living just like the world, if we are as hopeless as the world, it's never going to ask why we have something that it doesn't have. Why we have a calm and steadiness in the storms of life. Well, why do we have that? Well, the author is going to get back to that in just a moment, but this is a problem today. Churches are filled with people that say they look forward to Christ's return and to all the glories that await the people of God, but they don't live like it's actually true. They don't have a hope that the world can see in them. And this author says to his generation, you don't either. Right? You're, we're looking at a people who are being shaken to and for, forth by every uh, wind that's happening, every danger that comes your way. You're saying, I've got to get over here out of the way into safety. And this author says, you have safety if you just open your eyes and look at who you're anchored to. And so again, this is a problem. We need to recognize that this living hope that is within us must be lived out in a way that validates that it's actually true. Right? If we have a living hope and we're transformed by the Holy Spirit, then that must be evident. And the world would see in us something that the world cannot offer. I think that's Peter's entire context. Right? The early church had an entire generation of people who saw Christians acting as if they had a transformed life. They had a hope beyond the here and now and a hope beyond the ups and downs of this world. They would look at Christians even under severe persecution and they would say, they're not afraid. I mean, they have the same fears that we have, but they have a hope that goes beyond those things. And it was a, a, quite an impression. You know, the more Rome persecuted Christians, the more the church grew. I mean, we, we know this from history. And in fact, wherever the church is persecuted tends to grow. That doesn't mean we pray for persecution. But we recognize that sometimes what persecution does is strips away the falseness of religion. And then Christianity is shown, right? Those that are truly of the faith, it's evident. And so again, it's a testimony to people. There is a hope that goes beyond what we have in this world. And he's saying, you are not of this world. Your hope is not in this world. Therefore, the changing nature of this world cannot touch the hope that you have. That's the promise we have in Scripture. So live like you have a hope beyond the here and now. It's terrible to be in persecution. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't rob you of your hope. 
And we recognize in our world today, we see a world run amuck with sin, don't we? Everything is broken and messed up. And we even see a world that is trying to push vile sin on our children. Uh, we can see very much today the, the kind of world we live in. But again, and we don't want to dismiss the seriousness of that, by the way. That is serious, and we stand against it, and we fight against it. But our hope is not in this world. We don't believe that somehow next week there's going to be some no edict of government that's going to fix everything. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his kingdom, that our hope is not in this world. And this author is saying, don't let your hope seem like it's in this world. Because if you're being blown to and fro by the events of the world, that's ultimately what you're testifying to. And that's why I say we have to worry about this as Christians today. We live in a messed up world, there's no doubt about it, but Christians should not be the most negative people around. We shouldn't be the most depressed people around because we recognize how bad things are, but we should also kind of expect that it would be this way in a fallen world. I'm not shocked when I see the things that are going on in the world. It's heartbreaking. You wish it weren't happening, but I'm not shocked by it. I don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We expect Christians to act like Christians. And that's really what this author is saying, right? If you are a Christian, then you have a hope that should be different from the world. When you see the tides turning and you see negative things happening in the world, you should say it's terrible, we're going to stand against it, we're going to fight against it. But ultimately, we have a hope in Christ that transcends anything in this world. And so we continue to stand. Now, how does this author picture this? Like an anchor. What a Brilliant little picture that is. This hope we have, he says, as an anchor of the soul. Now, he doesn't go into any kind of depth of explaining this. He doesn't need to. Everybody knows what an anchor is. Right? Even children look at the front of the bulletin. Right? Henry this morning, I saw him with his bulletin. He said, an upside-down anchor, because he was holding it upside down. He instantly recognized what that is. We all recognize what an anchor is. What does an anchor do? A sailor uses an anchor to fix his position so that the waters, as they chop and move and storms blow, don't blow him with it, right? That's the purpose of an anchor, is to hold you steady despite choppy waters. And it's interesting because that's a a picture we've already seen in the text, isn't it? Chapter 2, he says that uh, we need to be careful not to drift away. Now, we gave kind of two pictures of that in that chapter, if you remember. There was the, the first one of being at the ocean, being in the water, bouncing around, and the next thing you know, you're way down the coast. But the other one, more accurate to the picture he's giving throughout the letter that we talked about, was of a boat not anchored, going into a harbor, the, the captain losing attention for a moment and sailing by the safety of the harbor. That's the warning. Don't be so close, lose focus, and sail by the safety that is offered in Christ. If you are outside of Christ and you've been near the church and, and you think you have all the trappings of religion, that might happen. That's what he's saying. You may never have been born again. You may never have been a true Christian. You miss all those things. You're so near and yet so far away, so far away. And so, again, the, the point there goes back to this. You have an anchor if you were in Christ. You have an anchor to, to give you safety and not let you be tossed and, and blown around by the storms of life. And that anchor is an important thing to think about. It gives us security, just as it would for a sailor. Anchor is very important for a sailor. It's very important for us. But look what's said about that anchor. Because this is an anchor not obviously over water and storms on the water, right? This is an anchor over storms in society. 
persecution and great difficulty. The winds have changed. It was a little uncomfortable to be a Christian ten years ago, this author says. Now it's dangerous to be a Christian. The waters have changed. A storm's blown in. But you have this anchor, right, that holds you steady and secure. And in fact, he says that. Look at what he says. He describes this hope as asphales, or sure, means certain. It's holding firm now. It's not going to fail now. But he doesn't leave it at that. Do you notice? He goes on beyond that to say it's also bebeos. It's also steadfast or lasting, secure, moving forward. However you'd want to translate that. It's safe now and it will always remain safe. This is not an anchor that's chained, is going to rust and fail. Or an anchor that's somehow going to become detached. This is an anchor that you can trust in. It will always hold you fast. It will never fail. It will never fail. No matter how much the storms blow in, this anchor is built to endure. It won't fail. No matter how much things get difficult, it will hold fast. You can trust in it. It will be eternally true and good. If you have this hope in Christ, and that's what the anchor is, look again, this hope, the hope to which you have fled for refuge, if you have this hope, he says for you it is an anchor of the soul. If you have this hope, you have this anchor. And if you have this hope, you are fixed permanently, safe permanently. If you have this hope in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from it. Now we could think about St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? In Christ Jesus. There's another picture of that. We cannot be separated from it. It is unshakable regardless of what happens in this world. If you're a Christian in the Ukraine and there's a battle going on around you, that can't affect your relationship with Christ. That can't put it in danger. If you live somewhere in the world where there's not a lot of security when it comes to food, that might be a challenge, but it does not put your faith in Christ in danger. We have this anchor. And notice something else about the way this anchor is described. Not only sure and steadfast, which is important, But this anchor enters the presence behind the veil. Now that's an amazing thing to think about. It's not merely the picture of an anchor plunged in the water. Our hope is not anchored in this world, right? That seems obvious, but it's important this author inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, to say. He says it's, it's it's not anchored in water. Our hope is anchored in the heavenly tabernacle. It's anchored in the place where Christ is today. It's anchored with Christ and because of Christ. And we'll remember this very author has said that Christ passed through the heavens to enter uh, into the veil he's behind now. You know, the Levitical priests, they entered behind a curtain, we know, in the temple. We've talked about it. We're going to come back to that in Melchizedek. But Christ went through the heavens to enter, if you will, this heavenly tabernacle. He has entered in there, and our hope is secured with him there. Now, There is nothing then in this world that can touch that hope because it's not anchored anything in this world. It's anchored to the person and work of Christ. It is unshakable. Global wars can't shake it. Grocery prices can't shake it. Government can't shake it because none of those things secured it or can touch it or harm it in any way. Now, those are things we deal with in the real world, challenges that we face. But again, they cannot touch the security that we have in Christ. And so they are unshakable. 
And it's important to recognize this. We have an unshakable faith in Christ. And that brings us to our second point, a victorious and ministering forerunner. Just as the Christian cannot be separated from this hope anchored in heaven, neither can we be separated from Christ. Why? Because it's Christ who we're ultimately anchored to. It is this faith and the hope that we have in Christ. He is our forerunner. In fact, it describes Him in just this way. He has entered into this place, and our hope is anchored to Him, and thus it is anchored to Him in this place. It's important because our hope is not, uh, if you will, in hope itself. Our hope is not even in our own faith, as if I believe better, therefore I am more secure. No, our faith simply rests on the promises of God, believing in the promises of God. And that was the, really the ultimate example of Abraham, wasn't it? Abraham didn't say, I believe so strongly that God will do this, that he must. No, he said, God has said what he will do, and therefore he will do it. God's promise is the bedrock of my faith. It is what I rest my faith in. And so again, we recognize that our hope is secured by the word and promise of God. Abraham was a great man of faith, no doubt about it. And we are to model our faith after people like that who didn't have a faith that was shaken by events in this world. Not even the command of God, which seemed to go against what God had already said. Abraham said, no, God will work this out. His promise will stand. He is sure and steadfast in all that he says, and I trust it. I trust it. But again, Abraham wasn't, because I trust enough, it will happen. Abraham said, because God has said it, it will happen. Because he has said it, it will happen. And this author wants us to recognize that our security, our anchor, our hope is really in what Christ has promised and what Christ has done. He completed the salvific work. He's the one who came into the world, went to Calvary's cross, gave an atonement, rose from the dead. But the story doesn't stop there, right? That's what Hebrews wants us to focus on. We needed a perfect sacrifice, but we also needed a perfect high priest. If you don't think that's important to this digressive message, Look at 20. He goes back to it again, that he became a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that important? Abraham was given a promise, and he said, that's good enough for me. If God gave a promise, he will do it. The author says he also gave a vow after the fact, but he says that wasn't for Abraham. Abraham didn't need it. He believed the promise. He said it's for those who are the heirs of the promise. That's us. That's the readers of this originally. And us and every generation in between, God gave a vow and a promise to confirm to us that He is faithful to keep His word. He intends to do it. He will do it. And therefore, we recognize in all of that that we are given this consolation that He's talking about, that what God has said He will do, we too are given both a promise and a vow. Where? Well, the same one Abraham was given. But we've got a little more information down the line too, don't we? How about Psalm 110? I have sworn, that's an oath, and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this author says that promise and vow, all of our hope is tied into. It's not just enough that there was an heir that came into the world. He had to accomplish something. He came into the world to accomplish something. He came to be the perfect sacrifice, yes, but also the perfect high priest. To have the perfect sacrifice, but no one to, uh, to mediate on our behalf would, be, would not succeed. It would not avail. We had to have both sacrifice and priest. And that, again, is what he's getting to here. 
He says we have a hope because we have a forerunner. One who goes before us. Prodromos. One who goes before us. Now this is another place where we can see the difference between the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood. Aaron went into a place as our representative, but we could never follow. We could never go into the earthly holy of holies. And we can read what would have happened if we had tried to, right? It would have ended in disaster for us. But Christ is our forerunner in a way that he goes first for others to follow. The heavenly tabernacle that he goes into, we will one day also enter. And that's the point. He is our forerunner. He has made the way, our trailblazer. He has gone on ahead of the rest, preparing the way. And so we see there a difference that's very important. He is the one who has made a safe passage for us to come before God. In fact, if you think about it, it's what said earlier. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. And we dealt with that then, if you remember. We couldn't go boldly into the uh, Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, but we can now go boldly before the throne of grace because Christ is there and has made a way for us, reconciled us to a holy and righteous God. That is what we call justification. He has justified us and made us stand in His perfect righteousness. Therefore, we can go boldly even before the throne of grace. And that's what's happened here. Christ has gone on ahead and made a way for us. Made a way for us. And that is a major difference between the two priesthoods, which we'll come back to. So God has sworn He will not relent that Christ is a priest forever. And our hope, this author says, is tied to this. Don't miss it. It is tied to it. And so this morning, I want us to think about this just for a moment as we close. Because again, this author is clearly going to go back to the example of this mysterious priest king, right? That's clearly where he's going. He says it here, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we go into verse 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, let's exposit his life. What little details we have about him, let's talk about them. Let's think about them and let's see how they point to Christ. A very fruitful thing to do. But that's where we're going. But for today, let's stay right here where our author is. Because he's brought us to this point, Abraham believed the promise of God. It was enough. His word was enough. And this author says, you had the promise of God and the vow of God. In many different ways, we could go back to that one given to Abraham. We could go to the one in Psalm 110. Many promises and vows along the way in which to put our faith. And if you are his, he says, you are his. There is nothing that's going to break that relationship. You are anchored to Christ. If you are His, you are anchored by faith, by God's grace. And all of that reminds us that Christ alone is the one who could fulfill the promises given. In fact, that was our catechism today, wasn't it? Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? It is only Jesus. Paraphrase. It is only Jesus. There is no other who could do it. And notice in that catechism... Even going to what we've talked about this entire journey, it's based on what? The incarnation. Only Christ could do it because only Christ could be God and man. Fully God and fully man. Truly God and truly man. He has come into this world not only to be a sacrifice, not only to be atonement for sin. Yes, He did that. But to be our faithful high priest. To go sit in the heavenly places without interruption. To make intercession for His people before His Father. All this... He has done. And all who belong to Him have a, a hope that cannot fail. It is anchored to Christ. It is anchored in that heavenly place.
guaranteed by both promise and vow. Therefore, don't be shaken. That hope cannot be shaken, so therefore you should not be shaken. Don't act tossed to and fro by the events of this world. If you are His, you have an anchor that cannot fail. In a place that it can never be lost. And that's because God's promises can never fail. I was just thinking this morning, we were singing the solid rock. And this hymn writer, thinking of this verse, wrote this. When darkness seems to hide his face... I rest on His unchanging grace. Right? So this, this verse and this text is all about the unchanging nature of God. His promise is good because He does not change. But listen to what he goes on to say, or what this author goes on to say. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. A reference to this text. Doesn't matter how great the storm is, doesn't matter how hard the winds are blowing or how hard the waves are tossing. If your anchor is within that veil, it will hold surely. And the takeaway from that, this author says, is confidence. Confidence. Yeah, things are going to get rough in this world. The truth is, I expect in our own world, things are going to get rough and tough. I think we can see it happening. So what does that mean? That means we remember we've got an anchor that holds through these storms. We hold fast to the promises of God. We trust in Him. If you are His, you are safely held. And my friends, if you have that knowledge, you have all the confidence to face whatever comes.